Welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 231. The Drabblecast is a weekly audio fiction magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm Norm Sherman. Well, folks, it's here. A couple months ago on the show, I mentioned I was doing a Kickstarter campaign raising money to produce my next CD. Thanks to 100 of you out there, literally exactly 100 people backed the project before the campaign deadline. We hit our goal and the CD became a reality. Ladies and gentle squid, my second full album has arrived. The Esoteric Order of Sherman. Ten tunes previously featured in the show, now professionally remixed and remastered, if not fully re-recorded in studio, for a polish and sheen that'll blow you away. Featuring undead teenagers mistaken for the regular sulking variety. College sweethearts fishier than the regular shambling variety. Woodland critters shadier than the regular woodland variety. And elusive worms deadlier than the regular Mongolian variety. Did you know I've got a death worm tramp stamp covering my lower back just above my booty crack? Did you know I give Not to mention amazing, really phenomenal album artwork by Drabblecast art director and megabeaster Bo Kyer. Don't miss out, people. It's the best CD you'll ever own. And that's a statement, not a fact. You'll find a Buy Now button by clicking the big old Norm's new CD icon over at Drabblecast.org. Go order yourself one and partake of a musical journey unlike any you could possibly be prepared for. Reasonably priced at 15 bucks, and hey, you're helping support old Norm and this whole Drabblecast thing, so you can't really go wrong. Again, that's Drabblecast.org and click the Norm's new CD icon. Follow the Sherman Merman. You'll know what I'm talking about. And it's just another lonely night here in Mongolia. All right, on to this week's show. You might have noticed the past couple weeks we've been featuring stories examining weirdness in the southern United States. I'm from the south myself and can vouch that it's quite the distinct culture. A place where things don't change fast. And people look at you funny if you ask for ice water. Because down there they drink something called ass water. It's a place where people say hello even when they don't know you, and people do declare even when it's not tax season. It's a great place to stir around speculative fiction ideas, that's for sure. And so this week, three different stories based on a theme, Trifecta 20, Southern Justice. We'll start things off with a story called Wit Carlson's Trespasser, which comes to us from Will Ludwigson. Will's work has appeared in Weird Tales, Cemetery Dance, Alfred Hitchcock's Mystery Magazine, Strange Horizons, Asimov's, and the second Interfictions Anthology, among other places. He's a 2006 Clarion graduate and a 2011 graduate of the University of Southern Maine's Stone Coast MFA program in popular fiction. The story is read to you by the ever-exuberant Hardy White. Hardy's the mastermind behind the Miracle Nutrition Hour, which features his podcast, radio show, movies, songs, and all sorts of other hilarity. Jump up to the dance, just want you to be happy, y'all. Oh, look at you going, and y'all. 
for one another. Have all men living together on the face of the earth as if they were one. Uh, that'd be strange, though. If we all were just one, it'd be a big, a giant robot consisting of all the different sexes of the earth, including such as, and also have the face of a dog hippo, all the dog ox, bird man, sort of. And it would uh, face in all directions at once and turn like a wheel inside a wheel or whatever. That a, that's a Michelle Legrand song, isn't it? I know it is. Oh, bless you once again. Hard to watch you. And you thought the Numa Numa song couldn't possibly be improved. Stick around at the close of this week's show. Gonna run one of my favorite Hardy White clips ever, dealing with something that writers and editors know about all too well, unfortunately. The submission rejection letter. It's hilarious. But anyways, for now, without further ado, we bring you Wit Carlson's Trespasser by Will Ludwigson. If it wasn't poachers on old Wit Carlton's property, it was Mormons, a Klansmen burning the cross, or a circle of chained apes escaped from the zoo. You'd damn well think that Wit had himself El Dorado on that hundred acres of his for all the people he suspected to try and raid it. Sheriff Beaumont wasn't having it this time. He folded his hands behind his head and leaned back in his industrial metal chair. It squeaked as it propped one boot to top the other on his desk and said calmly, now, Wit, just what kind of clown you reckon is on your property? What kind of clown? What the hell does it matter? Wit's voice had an entertaining way of leaping into the upper registers when he got excited, which was often. Truth be told, folks in town liked to poke the bear every so often, telling Wit they'd seen communists taking an envelope from his mailbox or Mrs. Carlton stepping out with a Methodist. It matters in lots of ways, Wit. There are different tactics required for, say, a garden variety circus clown versus your court jester or your fool. Different gauges of buckshot, too. A harlequin has a tougher hide than a rhino, and they get ten times as mad. I didn't vote for you, Beaumont, said Wit. Nobody did. I was appointed by the mayor, Sheriff Beaumont sighed. What did you say this clown was doing? He was fishing out in the creek, southeast corner of the property, just where the cypress swamp starts up. Fishing. For the sake of Jesus, yes, fishing. The hook passes. The hook passes. The hook passes again. It lingers near the math, tantalizingly close. What kind of bait was he using? Beaumont really wanted to know. It was spring and the shiners weren't as easy for the bass to see in all that sunlight. If the clown was using worms, maybe, or... I didn't stop to talk to him. I only saw him. He was perched in a tree, like dropping his line into the water, casual like he owned the place. He catch anything? Whit Carlton's face turned as red as a match head, and Sheriff Beaumont figured he ought not to light it. Now, trespassing's a crime. That's a fact. Whether you're a clown or not, you see any evidence that he was fixing to stay overnight, a hobo's bag maybe, or some blankets or whatnot? I saw him and I came straight to you, Sheriff. You ran, thought Sheriff Beaumont, which wasn't all that odd given how you don't much expect to see one in the woods like that. It dances, the hook, just on the edge. 
The wide, silvered eyes seem mesmerized by its glint and the mouth slowly opens. See, the reason I ask is, it's a hot day, and the cruiser's been acting up, and we've only got one jail cell with a high school football game coming up. Now, if he's still there and we catch him, he's gonna take up room we'd usually use to get a drunk off the roads. You want that on your conscience, Wit? A drunk out running over cheerleaders just to put your clown away? It's the law, cried Wit. I don't deny it, no sir. I'm only asking you to think of the worst thing that can happen with a clown in your back 40. The worst thing. The absolute worst. And compare it to Hat McCann's pretty little opal getting run down, just as a for instance, mind you. Witt thought that over, something he showed by clenching first one side of his mouth and then the other. He could steal fish, he finally said. The your fish, asked the sheriff. I mean, when you think about it, they're really God's fish, aren't they? And if he wants to give a few to that clown in the woods, I don't know that we ought to stop him. So I'm to let anybody come on my land all willy-nilly. What's the point of having it then? You tell me that. The point of having it, Wit, is that you're a bigger man for letting folks use it from time to time. When was the last time you was fishing for food on someone's farm dressed as a clown? Never, that's when. Cut the man a break. Be a Christian, will you? We tried to say something and then stopped. He tried to say something else and stopped again. Finally, he stormed from the police station off to scream at the old men playing checkers and one of the ladies at the bank. That's a good day's police work, thought Sheriff Beaumont, tipping his hat over his eyes. The hook catches, slips, catches for good on her blued lips. She rises from the water on the end of her puppet string, her black hair washing back across her pale and wrinkled scalp, and he clutches her cold body close. He squeezes, even, and brown creek water oozes from the knife wounds. She's found, found again, found. She's his again. Our next piece is called The Six Pieces of Everett Montrose by Jamie Killen. Jamie's published short stories in numerous speculative fiction magazines and anthologies and lives and works in Arizona. This is her first appearance on the Drabblecast. The story is read to you by David Robison. David's indulged in creative pursuits his entire life, since writing Curious George fan fiction at age 8, improv theater at age 10, playing trumpet at age 12, as well as a theater degree, creating magazine cover arts, writing audio scripts, designing websites, and generally savoring the sweet draft of expression in all its forms. Recently, Dave and his buddy Brian started a new podcast called The Roundtable Podcast, where they invite published authors to help workshop stories presented by aspiring writers. First episode drops March 6th. We'll keep you on the loop on that. So without further ado, The Six Pieces of Everett Montrose by Jamie Killen. The six of them meet for the first time in front of the sagging, clapboard house where Everett Montrose was born. 
All are tired, with hollows under their eyes from driving or riding buses for days. Even so, they greet each other with shy, relieved smiles. Few words are said. Most seem unsure how to speak to each other. There are some handshakes, even a quick hug or two. But these interactions are awkward, and all soon turn their attention to their reason for coming here. They all carry with them small pieces of Everett Montrose, and all instinctively touch the fragments as they look to the house. It took the six pieces of Everett Montrose almost ten years to find a home. Ten years of fighting the currents of the Mississippi, looking for someone willing to claim them. Fragments of what were once much larger parts can be seen on each of the six. A slender metacarpal, found while skinny dipping on graduation night, dangles from Christina's ear. There is the nubbin of Everett's toe that spilled out of a gutted fish and into Gordon's hands, and the femur Terrilyn's dog brought to her while walking near the water. Paul has Everett Montrose's left radius tucked in his coat pocket, while Mark displays a mud-flecked vertebra on a chain around his neck. Everett's skull had the longest journey out into the Gulf of Mexico and across the water to the beach near Corpus Christi. It was when Esperanza stepped on the piece of skull and cut her foot that she and the others became aware of why they had kept these odd little pieces of bone for so many years. At the moment the memories hit, they realized that they had always known deep down what these bones were. When finding them, they had pretended that the bones belonged to a fish or a cat or some other animal, but they had known. And when the memories came on too strong and fast to ignore, they retrieved the pieces from the jewelry boxes and desk drawers where they had lain half forgotten for years. Then each of them packed a few things and left, not bothering to tell anybody where they were going. And now they stand here, in front of the house where Everett was last alive. They all remember it well, although it never happened to them. They remember fighting with Bobby Lee over which of them Papa would have wanted to keep the house. They remember the pain and shock of six bullets ripping through their bodies. They remember being cut into pieces and dropped into the river. They remember sinking and cold and dark. And they remember the rage. More than anything else, they remember the rage. Bobby's still here. He'd never give it up. None of them is sure which of the others spoke. Perhaps they all did. Are we ready? Silence and nods. Then, as one, they move toward the house. And lastly, we bring you Bull Weevil by Nathaniel Lee. Nathan's a writer living in North Carolina with his wife, child, and obligatory cats. Also, he's the Drabblecast submissions editor and editor of Mirror Shards, of which the Mirror Shards book you can find a link in our show notes to. Bull Weevil originally appeared in Parsec Inc.'s Triangulation. So without further ado, we bring you Bull Weevil by Nathaniel Lee. 
Jess drove his truck down the lines in the middle of the road, on the grounds that he was drunk and it was safer that way. A half-empty bottle of Jameson sloshed on the bench seat beside him, carefully secured with the seat belt. Most of the rest of the liquor from the ABC store rattled in the truck bed. Jess wasn't normally a thief, but he figured at this point it was technically just collecting abandoned property. Trespassing at worst. Either way, he wasn't spending the end of the world sober. The lines were hard to see under the rippling carpet of shiny black bodies, flowing like water down the asphalt. The truck's tires made a crunching sound, as if Jess were driving under bags of potato chips and pork skins. Didn't smell nearly so nice, though. Jess brought the truck to a ragged halt in the general vicinity of his front yard. He popped a beer and downed it in one long gulp, then tucked the rest of his six-pack under his arm, plucked up the whiskey, and staggered into the house, singing off-key. Oh, the bull weevil is a little black buck come from Mexico, they say. The front door was open, weevils clinging to the screen. No sense trying to keep them out at this point, was there? Jess paused to crumple his empty can into a makeshift doorstop and propped open the screen door. The weevils flowed in round Jess's ankles like leaves blown by the wind. Come on in, said Jess. Make yourselves at home for all the good it'll do you. Mi casa es su casa. He giggled at that. Come looking for a home, didn't you? Like the song said. Y'all come farther than Mexico, though. He brushed a couple of weevils off his chair and plopped down. One of them started back up, using Jess's pants leg as a ladder. He didn't bother shaking it off. It was an argument a few months back, he told the weevil as it settled on the meaty part of his arm. About whether you was a, a plague of locusts from the end times, or if you were a bioweapon made by the government in their secret lab, and we all was guinea pigs. Jess snorted. He hadn't really participated in the discussion, being at best a half-hearted churchgoer and an indifferent voter. I don't figure you either way, he said. Newsman said y'all was from another planet, and that's a good enough explanation for old Jess. Uh, the news said a lot of other things that was bunk, though. Y'all didn't die in the winter, and y'all sure as hell didn't starve to death on Earth food, neither. After winter, the weevils had started to breed in their inimitable way, and that's when the news had started to use words like containment and quarantine and regrettable. That was Jess's favorite news word. A lot of regret going around lately. Jess took a long, slow drink from the whiskey bottle. The weevil rode his arm up and down like it was on a ride at the fair, clinging with its four little legs. It sank its needle end into Jess's flesh. Ah, Jess said, but he didn't mind much. He had a dozen stings already, so it was only a matter of time. A week, two, maybe. He'd seen what happened to his neighbors, seen the picked clean bones and the poor children lying in bed, welts on their chests and arms, and rifle slugs in their heads. You know, you don't look a whole lot like a bull weevil, Jess told the creature on his arm. It was crumpling up, its biological imperative fulfilled. Soon it would drop off an empty husk and leave millions of little baby weevils behind. Jess burped and drank some more. He finished another beer and heaved himself up. Outside, the road was empty, save for the weevils. All the cars had gone with Brett and his crew when they all tried to run the blockade. Jess hadn't dared get close enough to see what had happened to them. 
tanks and guns weren't much against weevils, and they still did a number on people. Overhead, the sky faded as the sun headed for the horizon. The planes were coming at seven, according to the re-recorded broadcast on the radio. Jess walked out to the porch and leaned against the railing. He took a sip of whiskey and watched the weevils on the trees, a solid and seething mass of them, clinging and burrowing away. Jess cocked an ear as he heard the faint, distant rumble of an engine in the sky. Y'all didn't mind the hot sun, nor the cold ice, he told the weevils. You ate up everything there was to eat, but that up there, he gestured up with the bottle. You ain't gonna like that, not one bit. First up is gas, then bombs, and the both those don't work, and I, I wouldn't bet that they would on account of y'all are tough little bastards. Then they'll turn this mountain to cinder and ash, and nothing'll live here for a thousand years. Me, I don't care. Far as I'm concerned, y'all can stay if you want. I ain't got the final say, though. Jess squinted at the horizon. Yeah, I bet y'all wish you could fly like proper insects now, huh? Jess started to take another drink and paused. He looked around him, at his house all covered in weevils and his truck in the yard filled with boxes of stolen booze. He poured the rest of the bottle out on the ground. Yeah, well, nice knowing you anyway. Jess sang. The first time I seen a bull weevil, he was sitting on a square. Next time I saw a bull weevil, he had his whole family The engine sounds grew louder, and the darkness thickened suddenly. Jess took a breath and felt the sting at the bottom of his lungs. The first quiet thumps began. All around him, the sound of tiny, hard-shelled bodies hitting the ground made a noise like summer rain. Jess coughed and breathed in deep, and he sang the bull weevils down. was our trifecta. Hope you enjoyed. Clowns, bugs, and body parts, all in a good day's work. If you had a good time with us this past half hour, consider throwing a donation our way via the links on our website, treblecast.org. You don't have to, but would be mighty kind of you. We pay authors for their work and shelter the occasional forest clown. We really appreciate it. All right, and to close things out this week, our 100-character Twitvic winner, ROU Killing Time, with this butte right here. Professor Plex 8 continued, Even if humans did exist, that hardly supports the theory of intelligent design, does it? Interesting. 
We call them twabbles. Stories exactly 100 characters, not counting spaces. Give it a shot. Post it in our discussion forums to enter our weekly contest. We might pick yours. Oh, and that reminds me, don't forget there's more Hardy White content at the end of this week's show. The Drabblecast is produced with the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means don't change or sell it, but feel free to share it all you'd like. Tell a friend, write us a review on iTunes, spread the weird. Special thanks to this week's awesome episode artist, Brent Holmes. Find a link to more of his awesome work in our show notes. We'll see you next week, weirdos. Until then, I'm Norm Sherman, reminding you, I didn't vote for you, Beaumont. I like to do a lot of things, uh, and I like to have fun. But my, the thing that's closest to my heart, I think, is writing, poetry. And uh, there's no joke to go with it. I just really, uh, I feel like I'm my freest when I'm writing. I feel like all the problems I do have you know, disappointments about love or health or family relationships. The poetry's a salve for that. It keeps me together. And uh, it's very close to my heart. So when this came today, uh, I was more than excited. I submitted some of my poetry to a journal and I'm getting the letter back. This is the envelope that I addressed. If you want your work back, you, uh... Ooh, they didn't send my work back. Here it is, let's see. You're gonna find out with me whether my poem got accepted. Dear sir, your poem that was sent for consideration, My Long Weird Dream, has been read and reviewed by our editors. We regret to inform you it will not be published in the D review at this time. Well, that's, uh, that's disappointing news. We do encourage you to keep trying as this poem provided our staff with many hours of joy as we passed it around the editorial offices. The consensus was that this is a brilliant effort indeed if it is parody. However, many of us were distressed by the notion that this may, in fact, be a sincere effort, in which case we fear not only for our culture, our country, and humanity in general, but also for our personal mental well-being, since the breathtaking banality, ineptitude, and repulsive nature of your work has left an indelible scar on our psyches, robbing us of any hope or optimism we may have had for the state of American letters. At once childishly naive and tritely world-weary, your derivative, tone-deaf, and awkward poem suffers from the most tortured syntax, confounding logic, and unbearable, cliched imagery of anything produced by anyone ever, including Hitler's paintings, Charles Manson's songs, and Pol Pot's plays, had he written any. We regret we cannot return the copy you sent, as it is stained by every human bodily fluid imaginable as we try desperately to purge the evil from our souls through the mortification of our flesh. Good luck with future endeavors, the editors. 
it's uh, I love, I love to write poetry. And I'm, just, and I'm gonna keep loving it too. 